Now exploring the world of dairy on Food FM, this is Arthur's Table with Arthur Potts Dawson. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson. Well, welcome to Food FM. Uh, today we're talking about dairy, the dairy industry, the production of cheese, also butter, yogurts, and creams. And we have three wonderful, wonderful panelists. Um, we have Tim Mead from Yo Valley. Uh, Tim is the CEO and director and creator of, of, of Yo Valley. We have uh, Penny and Marcus from Felton Farm who produce some of the most fantastic award-winning cheese in Britain. And we have Patricia Michelson from La Fromagerie who is the, the, the whiz behind, I think, cheese retailing in, in London uh, and if not the UK. So uh, me having introduced you very poorly, uh, maybe I could ask each of you to, to, to jump in and, and explain um, who you are and what you do. Uh, perhaps starting with Tim at the beginning. Tim Mead, um, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Tim Mead from Yo Valley and um, I've lived in the Yo Valley at Holt Farm for all of my life and my parents moved to the farm 60 years ago, started making dairy products 50 years ago. We've been looking after the Yo Valley brand for the last 25 years. And I think we're quite proud to say that we take milk from over 100 organic dairy farmers throughout the UK. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Penny and Marcus? Uh, so we are uh, Marcus Ferguson and, uh, and Penny Nagel from Felton's Farm. Uh, we're based in South Somerset. Um, the farm is a organic small holding. We moved here seven years ago, um, something of a midlife crisis getting out of London. Uh, and we make cheeses here. Um, we make three cheeses, uh, Renegade Monk, uh, which is a washed rind, uh, soft cheese, blue cheese, Rebel Nun, which is also a washed cheese, but slightly bluer, and the Fresca Margarita, which is our, our, our new arrival, which is a fresh cheese. And we do everything here as sustainably as possible. So all the uh, cheese production uh, is done uh, using solar energy and ground source energy. So we try to tread as lightly on the land as possible. Wow. Patricia? Um, I'm celebrating 30 years next year of um, being in the cheese business and uh, we started very small in a garden shed and now I have three shops in London plus uh, a wholesale restaurant side and uh, a lot of online that we're trying to manage at the moment. Um, and what we do is, is celebrate the small independent cheesemakers and producers and try our best to relate what they do into the shops and with the produce to our customers. So it's, um, it's a whole sort of cycle from start to finish. Well, thank you, Patricia. Tim, I wonder if you could start our conversation off with just what it takes to produce milk and, and how important milk is and the quality milk is to producing cheese and, and uh, dairy products. I think, I mean, we hear a lot, of, a lot today about biodiversity and I think biodiversity of the human species is also quite important. So we've developed over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years all around the world consuming different food types. Northern Europe, where there is the rainfall, the soil types, etc., is an exceedingly um, fertile area and has got the huge amounts of ability to grow grass. And of course, cows make the best milk from grass. So what determines the, the diet of the, of the population was what you could actually grow in the areas where you come from. And we are blessed in Somerset with great grass and great grazing. Um, so for me, you know, I come from a long line of dairy farmers and growing, you know, grass and providing that grass to our cows has just been a, a natural extension of, of what we do. When it comes to cheese and butter, obviously grass grows very, very well in the spring and cheese and butter was, was a way of preserving and being able to get access to that milk over a much longer time period. So Somerset used to have, I think it used to have 150 farmhouse cheesemakers. And that was when all the milk was produced in the spring. And it was a way of preserving that food and making it available to customers throughout the year. So um, I don't think we should forget about the, the biodiversity of the diet of you know, the human species. And when we get to Somerset, we are just absolutely blessed with the ability to produce great grass and therefore great milk to go on and make the cheeses that um, 
that Marcus and Penny can, you know, produce and Patricia can sell. One of the important factors of, of really understanding the land and the, the land that the animals uh, live on and, and, and graze on is the importance of, of soil and soil health. Um, because I know that agriculture has accelerated through over the past 60 years into sort of monocultures, you know, huge volumes of dairy being produced, perhaps to the detriment of both the animal and the land. Um, can you talk a little bit, Tim, about the health of soil and the importance of it in moving forward with uh, dairy production? Yeah, sure. Um, I think soil is having a bit of a resurgence. It's becoming the trendy topic about, you know, going back, you know, to healthy soil, to healthy plants, to healthy animals. And I think there's a realisation that the monoculture, industrial farming, oil-based agriculture has actually run its course. And if we're to look to start putting carbon back into the ground, and, you know, let's face it, soil has three times more carbon in it than the atmosphere, which is causing the um, change situation. Soil has three times more carbon than all the plants and trees on the planet. And therefore, it's, it's for me, you know, as not a scientist, it's pretty basic. What we've got to do is start getting organic regenerative farmers putting carbon back in the soil and not using oil-based fertilizers, synthetic chemicals and pesticides, because it's the soil life that not only will reverse climate change, but will also produce the healthier food that gets translated in the nutrients and the denseness of the, the vitamins, etc., and into the cheeses that you know, Marcus Penny will, 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 will make. And do you think, so animals in, in, a, in, a, in a well husbanded way have something to add and, and, and help us to, to sequester this carbon in soil, is that right? I think, I mean, it's a tricky point because our decision tree in our, in our family is, number one, is it ultra-processed food? And unfortunately, as we found out recently, the French consume 15% ultra-processed food and the Britons consume 55% ultra-processed food. So our decision tree is about, is it ultra-processed? If it is, avoid it. The next one, is it produced using oil or soil? and therefore we always choose soil, then the third decision is what is the balance between plant and animal? And there's been a huge debate over whether we should adopt a 100% plant diet or not. And for me, that is actually the least important decision. You know, it's about processing food, it's about soil, not oil. And if you take those two decisions at the beginning, then the land and the area that you're farming will deliver you the right balance of meat and dairy and plants and crops that we consume. So as, as an individual, I personally believe that the 8.7 million life forms on the planet are completely and intricately linked to the plants and the soil, and therefore to remove animals from the food production, I think is something that will only end up exasperating the, the problem with soil and you will destroy your life. So the answer is, in, in my view, is that we should 100% use animals to help sequester carbon and, and to give soil life. And what we shouldn't do is go down a monoculture, just growing grain and soya crops in fields using chemicals, because that is the thing that will destroy the soil. So it's a big tick for animals from me. Yeah. Well, Penny and Marcus, if I can bring you in here, I think it's something very interesting about what Tim's saying, um, because I visited you and your production, uh, your cheese producing facility, and you have animals working the system in a different way, don't you? Because you're producing whey from cheese, and that's going to feed your pigs. Now, can we talk a little bit about your systems and, and, and how you're connecting cheese to the land and, and making it more resilient? Yes. Um, so when we started doing uh, making cheese, we were given a quote to take the whey, which is a byproduct of cheese making, off the land, uh, using an, an enormous kind of diesel-fueled lorry. And we just and we just and we said, surely that that's not what everyone does. And they said, yep, that's what every cheesemaker does, unless they convert it into bodybuilding powder. And we kind of looked back and we just looked, we looked at each other and we said, there've got to be better ways to do this. So we um so we looked back and we kind of went actually about you know most people in, you know a long a few years back used to feed it to their pigs 
And that's what we did. So we keep Oxford Sandy and black pigs and they, they take all of our way to the extent that we had um, 22 piglets uh, started in September. And the mothers, whereas normally kind of, you, they, they, they almost suck the mothers dry. Those, the pigs, that the mothers, they've just been um, taken off. Those pigs are looking absolutely kind of in top, tip top condition because they've had all of this delicious, basic bodybuilding material. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so, we, so you're using. So we've got. Um, if you could take us a little bit through the process of, of cheese making um, for the listeners who perhaps like eating cheese but not fully understanding of it, because you're you're basically buying in uh, local uh, milk and, and turning into a, a fabulous cheese. And then what 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 processes does it go through? I mean, perhaps just for the just for the the, the simple cheese knowers, because you're producing a sort of soft, very French style cheese there at Felton Farm, aren't you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the strange thing about about cheese making is that the, the, the basic process is is very similar for hundreds of different cheeses. There are a few exceptions, but for most cheeses, you, you, you take your, 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 your milk, um, you obviously make a decision whether you're going to make a raw milk cheese or a pasteurized milk cheese. Uh, we, we pasteurize our milk uh, simply because of the nature of the cheese we are making. It would be reckless, I think, to make uh, Renegade Monk with with raw milk because it is a washed rind cheese. It's a soft cheese. It's a blue cheese, and it's it's ticking every every box uh, of things that could go wrong. So we pasteurise the milk. Thereafter, the for pretty much all cheeses, you heat the milk up to a starter culture, um, and there are different ways of doing that. Some people can use whey from the previous make, or you you use commercial cultures. Uh, but the job of the culture is to start acidifying the milk. So when the milk comes in, uh, it's pretty neutral. It's got a pH of about 6.7, and you need to start acidifying that milk. Uh, and by acidifying the milk, you are turning the lactose in milk, which lots of people are allergic to, or some people are allergic to, and you're converting that uh, into, into lactic acid. Um, you may at that stage add other cultures, um, such as uh, we add Penicillium Rock 40, which is typically used to, to, to introduce blues into cheese. There are other cultures you can add that will uh, have an effect on the rind and on the, on the flavour. But you add the cultures, it will slowly start acidifying. Then you add uh, rennet, which coagulates the milk, and there are various options for uh, whether you use a, a natural animal rennet or a vegetarian microbial rennet. Uh, but what that does is to is to coagulate the milk, and then you you cut the coagulated milk uh, into into cubes. Um, and depending whether you want a soft cheese or a hard cheese, you you make those uh, those cubes uh, bigger or smaller. Uh, and then the curds will sink to the bottom. The whey rises to the top. You drain off that whey, and then you ladle the curds into into molds, which are. Generally, look like little flower pots with lots of holes in them, so that the whey can can drain out. Um, and you, you you leave them in the molds for, depending on the cheese, for sort of up to twenty four hours, turning them a couple of times. And during that period, they will sort of shrink in size by about fifty percent. Um, then you take them out of the molds, you add some salt to them, uh, and then you put them away to mature. And then there may be other processes while you're maturing them. So, for example, we'll wash ours with, with, with ale to develop the flavours on the rind. But that process is, is largely the same for almost all cheeses. Um, I mean, there are exceptions, which I won't go into, but it's, it's heating up the milk, acidifying the milk, coagulating it, cutting it, salting it and maturing it. It's interesting, Marcus, because I've heard through the grapevine, taking, that, uh, taking the curd and putting it into the, into the tubs, um, it's quite uh, an important to get the weights and measures right. And I've heard that you're quite the Sergeant Major saying, well, make sure that that's the right level and right weight. Uh, I don't know who told me this, Marcus, but yeah, it's quite, it's quite a strict number of processes. Is that right? There, there are so many variables. So, so I've outlined it very simply as to how you yep. make cheese, but, but, but you have to be absolutely on top of, of temperatures, of, of pH levels, um, and you know, and the amount of curd that you are putting into those molds. So for our cheese, if uh, there's there's not quite enough, and we're talking in the molds, maybe a centimeter, two centimeters uh, less, then that cheese, as it develops, will 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 be too small. It will mature far too quickly. Um, you know, and before the the maturation time is up, it will probably have run off the mat. And if it's two centimeters too tall, 
uh, it's too big a cheese that, that, that never really matures in the centre. Um, but that's only one of the variables of, 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 of many, many variables that, that will affect the, the, the end product. Um, so you do need to be quite tweaky about this. Well, I've got a sense having, you know, Tim having said his, his points about understanding soil health and, and the, the relationship to that with animals and the production of milk. But, and also with you, um, Marcus and, and Penny, is that there's a, there's a love here for what it is that you're doing. And, you know, you've gone into cheese production, Marcus, like you say, as a sort of prior midlife crisis. What drew you into making cheese? I mean, you, you obviously love it and, and you make a fabulous cheese. Why are you cheese makers? It's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I, I was made redundant from my, my job in London and uh, yeah. I got headhunted to do a, a few other things in London. And I, I, I saw the light. We were already living in Somerset. And I just didn't want the grind of, of commuting up to London. And we were living on, on, on this small holding. And I, I knew I wanted to do something with food. And we looked at, at, at various options of, of whether we, uh, I don't know, raised poulet de breast chickens or, or tried to propagate and, and grow wild garlic. And then I looked at cheese distribution because I've always been obsessed with, with cheese. And, and it was Penny, actually, who said, why don't you make it? You know, you, you love cooking. Why don't you make it yourself and I thought she was crazy but I, I, I got packed off to do a one-day course at River Cottage uh, and I was hooked I mean it's this this fabulous mixture of scientific geekery all these measurements that I was just talking about and, and then this passion the artistic flair that you have to you know try and develop as well it's it's, it's a fascinating combination. Amazing isn't it? Um, Patricia I wonder what kind of different types of, of passion and, and love and, and commitment do you come across? I mean, you obviously, you've been from so many different cheesemakers across Europe and, and found obviously lots of different people, but, but have you got stories to tell of different people coming into this for, for different reasons and, and, and also your passion for cheese? Um, yes, I mean, I'm listening to this and sort of waving my hands around <laughs> saying fantastic because I'm the one that has the cheese or the dairy product and has to sell it. But also I feel that I'm the communicator from the land to the table because by giving communication and giving information and making the story of milk, of dairy, of farming, um, the, the one thing to resonate with people that they're not just opening up some cheese or um, you know, undoing the bottle of milk or pulling back the, the top of the, the yogurt and just eating it. They're looking at, at a, a whole sense of life. And I remember I was, I was talking to you um, a, a week or so ago and I was saying, when I fly over London, you know, when I come back from my, my little trips and I look out the window and I see fields of yellow rapeseed and my heart sinks because I know that that used to be dairy, that used to be pasture, that used to be full of animals. And all we see is agriculture, because agriculture is, makes money and dairy creates a whole set of problems because you're dealing with animals and everything else. And trying to figure out how we can get back to that sense, and right at the beginning, um, when I was listening, you know, the soil, the soil tells you everything. It tells you about the land and the terroir and the people, the people, because without the people, they can't, the land won't survive either without the people and without the animals, the husbandry and everything else. And I have to try and get that across to my customers. Maybe I'm, I'm you know, I'm a, people say, oh, you're niche, only certain people, the privileged will understand it, but it's also, it's out there for the wider public, whether they're going to a supermarket or to a market stall once a week. You know, the right information, not just the visual sense of, you know, Farmer Jones standing in his fields when you walk around supermarket seeing this jolly farmer. It shouldn't be that. It should be something much more, much more tangible that you can get hold of. And, I fell in love with cheese, as you know, when I was skiing very badly and came across after a bad day skiing, a, a beautiful cheese. And I thought, why can't I get this? And I brought home a piece, uh, you know, a big wheel of cheese, put it in my garden shed, scratched my head and said, right, I'm going to sell cheese. 
And I, that's what I did. But also I wanted not just to sell the cheese, was to tell the stories, the stories about the people, about the place, the terroir, you know, my lovely word terroir, the place, where it comes from, why does it taste like this? Why does a cheese down in the southwest of England taste so different from a cheese in Northumberland? Because of the soil, because of the nutrients in the soil, because of the climate. And I think that there has to be a way of communicating this much more. You know what? Um, we've had lockdown and, you know, I lost all my lovely events that I used to do in the shop have now had to go virtual. And this is what we've been doing. We've been doing these wonderful virtual tutorials and bringing in farmers and, and dairy and cheesemakers. Mary Quick did a wonderful one and went into the real depths of, of cheesemaking and her life on a farm. And that, you know, that is shared with other people. And maybe it was only like 40 or 50 people it was shared to, but those 50 told their friends and their friends told their friends. And I think we have to start communicating together. Me as the end of the line where I'm selling and communicating with those right at the, at the heart, at the coalface of, uh, of um, farming from, from the land. And I hope that we can do this. I hope out of all this COVID, we have made some form of communication with each other as a group, like we are now. There's been a, a more, there's always been a resurgence in people understanding the value of food as not just something that you eat, but it's something that brings people together, a, a friendliness, a, a camaraderie, a, you know, breaking bread together. And I thought the importance of, of breaking bread and, and eating it with a chunk of cheese and maybe a pickled onion, I know it's very, very simple. And Patricia, you say that it's only the, perhaps the privilege to get to eat these sort of high-end cheeses. But but I'd like to, to disagree somewhat because, Tim, you're in the heart of Somerset and very close to Cheddar country. And, and Cheddar in the UK is maybe even Cheddar around the world. I mean, I know an American said to me, so where do you live, man? And I said, oh, you know, Glastonbury, it's near Cheddar. Oh, oh there's a place called Cheddar? they said to me and you know and so cheddar is you know it's kind of synonymous with the region and perhaps even with the uk so cheddar cheese is, is in everyone's mind and patricia cheddar and, and and some cheeses are you know consumed by just about everybody every day you know cheddar cheese is, is uber famous right yes it is it is uber famous and you would say um okay yes everyone eats cheddar but um the majority of people that eat cheddar eat it out of a packet that take it out of plastic and then they eat the cheddar they don't know really how it smells or it's what has made it or where it's come from and what i mean about the privileged few those that go to the market store go to the local market or go to the local shop but just think about the millions of people that just use the supermarket, just do all their shopping online and have no clue about how that cheese is actually made or where it actually comes from either. And I think this is where the communication can get better. It has to be honest. And I think that, you know, the most honest thing is a piece of cheese because it comes from a single product, which is milk. And milk is the first thing that we as humans have. That's why we love it, because we have like an identity with it. If we didn't have milk when we were born, we wouldn't survive. So I think that we have to try and um, bring this whole sense of un not understanding, but also realization that land really needs to be nurtured and needs to be used properly. and. When people say, oh, everything's going to be plant-based, why? We're, we're, we're not geared for that. We as, as, as human beings are not geared for that. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a whole different story, I think. Well, Tim, it's, it's brilliant what Patricia brings up is that, you know, being able to survive into the future and your discussion around soil health and, and the future of carbon sequestering uh, carbon into the ground and good animal husbandry is all a vital part of of how we move forward into the next generation and, and how do you see that sort of transforming or, or becoming something that, that is better communicated and, and accepted by people i think i mean i think is it today that the um that the government published their um their their sort of paper on how to transform 
British farming. And I haven't actually read it in full, and it's been subject to many debates up until this point. But I think that you know we stand with the opportunity to redefine our future as, a, as an island in terms of our food production. And I just hope that it's not all rhetoric about having a more sustainable food system and a more resilient food system, and that actually when all the detail comes out, that the government food policy for the next 25 years stands the test of time and reverses what effectively we've been doing, which is you know destroying soil carbon, you know, adding to, to climate change when the, the weight of evidence is 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 gaining momentum that actually, you know, to be a to be a dairy farmer, to be a beef and a and a sheep farmer and think I can be part of a solution gives me renewed energy, it gives me renewed life because being part of a solution to climate change whilst producing healthy, nutritious, dense food is I think everybody would want to be in that position. So it's it's there for the taking and it's up to us as farmers and custodians of the land to seize the opportunity and become part of the solution. Yeah, oh, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm just romanticising a little bit, Tim, about cheese and, and, and you know, your family who, who've lived, well, you're, you've been farming there for 50 to 60 years in, in Somerset, but actually your family go date back nearly 500 years in, in the Somerset. Now, that, you know, if you look back all the way, and say, great, well, we would have used animals and, and, and used their cheese, not just cows, perhaps sheep and goats, um, and, and taken their um, milk and used it and turned it into, uh, into cheese in order to survive. There's some romanticism that I'd like to just d d delve into about sort of the, the history. How has, how has cheese in the dairy industry um, uh, affected you? Um, well, I think, that, I mean, Somerset had lots and lots of farmhouse cheesemakers. And to be honest, my father and mother moved to Holt Farm when they were 20 and 21, and they bought the farm with a mortgage. And I guess the normal course of action would have been to become a, a cheesemaker. But the, but the real facts of it were that yeah, you, you couldn't afford to tie up all of your income for a year making, making cheddar cheese. And therefore, I mean, lucky for us is that my father thought, I can't afford to be a cheesemaker. What's the next best thing? We'll we'll start doing some of that yogurt stuff. Um, so that's turned out pretty well for us. But the reason for the for, for, for that decision was that we were unable to afford to um, to fund the, the cheese stocks. And I don't know how how, how people do that really for if they're if they're starting up. So hats off to Marcus and Penny really. Marcus and Penny, do we we'll talk a little bit about that? That's very interesting. Well, when we, so, so one of the decisions that we made when we started making, and it was a pretty big decision, was whether we were going to make organic cheese or not. Because the price of organic milk is twice the price of uh, non-organic. And we decided that we were, it was really crucial to who we were and our ethics and, this, uh, and, and sitting lightly on the land that we did go organic. But because we were making in such small quantities and buying from our next door neighbour, uh, our neighbouring farm, we basically paid the same price as you would pay in a supermarket. But at the time it felt, you know, there was a big gulp because we didn't, you know, we effectively didn't make, <laughs> make any money in the first year. So I think that you do, you know, Tim was talking about the decision trees that you have in your business and in your life. That was a, a, a crucial decision for us. And it's actually evolved our business for us. Hmm. And there's a wonderful history to, to, to just to keep sort of pressing this history button because so many people, uh, certainly from a chef's perspective, or even the general public, when I try to explain to them that cheese has a reason for being, it's not just the fact that it's made for the hell of it. It's, it's there to, to actually preserve and hold um, all of the, uh, the nutrients and the, and the proteins and, and, and all of the, the elements that that, that dairy uh, production has. Because you can't keep milk indefinitely. You've got three, five, maybe seven days. I don't know if you pasteurize it. Maybe you've got a couple of weeks. But... There's an importance to actually storing uh, dairy and milk as cheese. Um, so milk's been very important, and I'd really like maybe to open up the discussion about the importance of, of dairy and, and cheese in preserving this energy source for, for human consumption. Um, Patricia, maybe you have a, a, an idea on that, or, or Penny and Marcus? Yeah, but I think it goes, you know, it goes way back as well before that. I mean, the animals were there. I mean. They they were um, they were there probably to start with as as beasts of burden and um, and then their milk was used 
to make things. I mean, most cheese making was done by um, monks and uh, religious orders because they had to be self-sufficient. And um, then they, uh, they educated their flock, <laughs> you know, the people to uh, also to farm as well. But I, it was, um, you know, when you think about things like, let's think, uh, mozzarella, for instance, the buffaloes came over in the time, I think, of Marco Polo and uh, sort of <laughs> deposited in Naples. And they loved the region, the animals, because it was sweaty and it was hot and, and it suited uh, the animal because the animal didn't have sweat glands, so it was used in, in the farms and, and the, the poor would, uh, would have the benefit of the milk. Uh, and the rich would eat meat, and the and the poor would have milk. I mean, it, it goes way way back. But it, it, the whole thing with milk is is that it's a, you know, and it's a one food. It's it's like wine. Wine has the benefit of grapes, and cheese has the benefit of milk. And it's a single source food that has been so important uh, to the livelihood, not not for the common man rather than for those that can have can have the wine the poor would have the milk and the butter and that's why they probably had a better life than the the, the rich that had a much more refined um meal uh you know and access to food so it's 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 been right right from the word go how animals were used not not just for their milk but also as part of of a family without the cow, without the, you know, the, the beast to plough the field, they, they couldn't live properly. So they're revered, revered in, a, in a lot of countries, but, but used in a way that was, um, that was a powerful way of preserving life as well. And I just think that we now are, you know, we, the way that we live and the refined foods that we have you know it's it's a quick easy low fat you know things that are taken out of of milk just think of all the things that are removed from milk remove this remove that and what are you left with you're left with something that is not the pure source that it should be this is what worries me because we are taught <laughs> or we read through the media that we, you know, we eat too much fat and we eat too much of this and that and the other. But the fats from things like milk and butter, they are good fats if they're eaten in the right way and, and not overindulged. But there's much worse trans fats that we eat and um, which are absorbed in our bodies that are not good. I, I just think that there's not enough information and, and honesty, the common man understanding you know, the, the most simple food now, which they should be eating properly, but are not. Yeah. And I wonder if we have uh, three uh, sets of, of, of people, Tim, the producer, uh, um, as well as the, the, the maker of, of yogurts and cheeses, uh, and uh, Penny and Marcus, the makers of cheeses, and, and Patricia, the seller of cheeses. Um, what type of discussion would you have as, as a group around a table, which, which we have here, although it is virtual, around different levels of importance or what could each be doing to support the other. Um, uh, you know, Tim, if I can sort of be the kind of the advocate for a discussion, uh, how would you see uh, someone like Patricia at the, at the retail front of, of the cheese system um, and how important are they? And, and Patricia, how important is the producer and, and, and how do you each communicate with each other with, with Penny and Marcus in the middle there actually making these cheeses? I thought maybe we could just have the panel open up your discussion and, and, and talk to each other about it. Well, for me, the, um, the light goes on when I can see something visually. Okay, so in France, I, I'm sorry, I have to say in France, but um, in Paris, once a year, I don't know if they'll ever do it again, you know, post-COVID, they have a Salon Agriculture, and every year um, the, the, the farms come up to the city of Paris and bring all their animals into this huge arena and they um, parade them and they're there for the for people in cities to come and visit and see the animals that produce the food that they they eat. And it's an incredible 
Um, I don't know if, if you've ever been to this Salon Agriculture, but it is an amazing week or two weeks where the whole of the country can diverge into a city, the city of light, and see animals walking around an arena and around people walking around them and getting up close and personal. And I always said I'd love to get a hold of them. Um, of the Prince of Wales, not hold, but in touch with the Prince of Wales, and um, say, why can't we bring, you know, the country to town, take over the whole of uh, Hyde Park for two weeks and bring agriculture, dairy, farming, everything, all the, all the wonderful harvesters, everything, bring it into the city for people to come and visit, just as, in, you know, 1950s, there was the you know the big um, you know exhibitions that went in. I think that we should we should bring it to the people. Well, if they do, I'll be there because that sounds a brilliant idea. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I think it was almost I think it almost happened um, about ten years ago. And I think they lacked the sponsorship or something like that to finally get it to happen. But the plans were to grow fields of wheat and oats and have cows being milked in Hyde Park. But unfortunately, I mean, I think, you know, for the for the UK, I think there's less than 2% of people involved in agriculture. Whereas if you go to France, which has been mentioned before, you know, about 20% are directly or indirectly, you know, employed in agriculture. And therefore, they just happen to be much, much closer to food production and agriculture. And the closer the population is, which is agreeing 100% with Patricia, is the closer the population is to actually seeing how their food is produced, then they can make the right choices and the right food choices that will support the methods of farming that actually we should be employing. You know, if you take people to units of 50,000 pigs or half a million chickens, they're going to want to be removed from that situation. Whereas if you take them to great dairy farming, people, people think that dairy farmers in the UK are fully industrialised, whereas the reality of it is, is that the remaining dairy farmers, the, the 10,000 dairy farmers that we have, the average size of those farms is probably, you know, 180 cows, which in its essence, hmm. you know, it's about a two or three person business. So the perception that everything is industrialised is, is not the reality. And I, I, I concur with the point that it's explaining to people what is a good method and then them being able to choose that method for how they want their food. And that, and that very much sort of chimes with, with, with our experience and, and you know, the, the conversation we would want to have with the, the mass of the people is, is for them to understand the cost of producing good quality food. You know, so this, we talked about it earlier about, you know, should it be a 100% plant-based diet, etc., etc. Of course it shouldn't, but we should be eating good quality meat rather than meat that has come out of a, 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 an industrial system or a battery system. Um, and we get it the whole time if we're selling cheeses at markets that people will come up and ask how much our cheese is and we'll tell them and they'll go, but we can buy a camembert for £2. They don't understand that food at that price has been made in a factory. And there's a reason why the artisan cheese is more expensive because of the process that, that goes into it, the love that goes into it. And it's, it's rather than looking at it in a sort of binary system of meat is bad, uh, industrial food is bad, educate people as to what food is good, how it is made, where they can find it. And to help them to, to, to understand maybe that spending a little more for a better quality cut of meat or a better cheese um, is something they, they, they can do and, and to cut back on the, uh, on the rubbish. There's another, there's another aspect of that, which is that we are all advocates for this system. And we have to be advocates for this system because one of the things that we do at Feltham's Farm is we run, uh, well, we were about to start running them, uh, cheese experience days. So that's inviting people to come and see how the cheese is made, inviting them onto an organic small holding. So we are not a huge farm. We have, we've got 22 acres here, but saying this is how we run things. This, you can see, you know, the pigs drinking away. We will then eat those pigs. Those pigs fertilise our land because they're all kind of outdoor reared. And seeing that cycle of life 
So bringing people into what we're doing, which I think is actually, you know, telling our story um, and telling it kind of as, as best we can, but also saying food is an adventure. You know, the, one, of the th one of the cornerstones of how, how and why we make food is because we, went on, we were on holidays in the south of France saying, this is delicious cheese. Why can't we buy a cheese like this in, in Britain? And then coming back and saying, well, let, actually, let's make. This is our version of Nepois, Renegade Monk, and kind of let's make a queso fresco that um, we really love because we can do this in Somerset. And well, interesting. Uh, I know we've been speaking about France and and, and the um, and the continent. I wonder if I might, and this is probably going to get a little heated, but it's important. You know, on the first of January, uh, you know, Britain is more or less disengaging, and we're going to be having to focus on on what Brexit is going to do, both for importing and exporting, and also using our own dairy uh, in the UK. Um, I wonder if I could ask all three of you to to put your points in. Obviously, we have to do it in in turn. But um, Brexit, good, bad, how do we benefit, uh, what are the negatives, and, and what could we be doing to improve it? Blimey. Um, so we... <laughs> I can start. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> we, we, we have a slight vested interest in the, um, in the, in the yoghurt business here, because um, if it doesn't sound like it comes from the Yo Valley, it's probably come from France or Germany or somewhere like that. So because the UK was... Um, very much behind in its consumption of yogurt. All the big European, mainly French brands, dominate yogurt production across the world. I mean, Yoplait and Danone are world leaders in every continent. And therefore, in the UK, we still import up to something like half a billion litres of milk in um, Europe gets turned into yogurt and gets shipped across the channel. So whilst I know firmly what my my vote was cast on, I have a sort of slight vested interest in the fact that um, it would be brilliant if British dairy farmers could rise to the challenge and produce milk that basically displaces all the imports of things that are unnecessarily imported. But that's, um, that's coming in from a very parochial point of view and sticking my commercial hat on. There we go. <laughs> uh, 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 Patricia, perhaps? Patricia, can, yeah. can you hear you? <laughs> oh, gosh, isn't it wonderful? Yes, I, you know, I agree. We should all be um, self-sufficient. Uh, we should go, we should utilise our land, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, you know, it's all price-based and everything else. But, you know, come January the 1st, price will be a, a very um, interesting conversation because with all the new legislation and paperwork and red tape and taxes. We're going to be taxed on this food coming in unless our government, um, you know, changes things and, and subsidizes it. And, um, you know, our food is going to change. Our, our, uh, the, the price of food is going to change. You know, here I am, I'm in this lovely bubble with you lot. It's wonderful. I wish we could all live together. I'm also in a bubble with all my shops and, and the people that come shopping. I'm really lucky to have great customers who love, love the food. But I think constantly about the rest, rest of the people you know, and I, I do go to supermarkets, not, not necessarily to buy food, but to buy other essentials for the home. And I look into people's trolleys all the time to see what they're getting. You know, I, I do like a midnight shop sometimes because I'm working so late. And there I am in Sainsbury's watching other people at night putting stuff in their in their trolleys without any clue of what they're having and what where it comes from and, and how good or bad or indifferent it is. Education, education, education. We have to bring it in right from the start where people celebrate where they come from, whether it's in London, a city out of London, to actually utilise the local food and to make it available and to make it affordable, as they say. It's a very grey area, you know, I'm of a certain age remembering, remembering when frozen food came in right after the war. I remember my mother being so delighted that she didn't have to pod a pea again because she could have it frozen. You see what I mean? Um, yeah. We've got to not reverse that, but rethink it, make people think about the fast food of life is a piece of cheese rather than something that's peeled off 
a wrapper. But Penny and Marcus, uh, uh, the, the, the final discussion on, on Brexit, good, um, good or bad, how, how does it affect you? Yeah, well, the slow motion car crash of Brexit. Um, we're not we're not fans of Brexit. Um, in terms of how it is for us as a as a business, it, it could cut a year ago, a year and a half ago, wholesalers started approaching us thinking that the price of cheeses from Europe was going to go up. Were we a, a potential replacement for a poiss? So, yes, we might sell more cheese in Britain. However, the European market may well be shut down to, to us. And that was something that was only just beginning to open up. Uh, for us. And on balance, I'd rather, I'm, I'm conflicted here because of, of, of food miles and all of that, but on, on balance, I, I think we'd rather sell our cheese across Europe rather than be limited just to Britain. We were, we were, we, we just started being stocked in two Michelin starred restaurants in um, Amsterdam. And so, so we're just kind of wondering what's going to happen now. I've got an interesting uh, cheese selection in my fridge and always like to have. I've got a slice of Beaufort, I've got a Taleggio, I had a Gorgonzola Dolce last night and a nice block of cheddar. <laughs> and uh, it might Fabulous. sound a little bit like, oh, all these different types of cheeses, but actually, you know, f for me as a chef, it's important that we support and nurture relationships of trade and also relationships with local producers, uh, whether it's an apple juice or a cider or an apple cider vinegar or a delicious uh, homemade pickled onion or, or an apple chutney. You know, there are so many different varieties of foods that, that we have to, to support and, and discuss. But, but just having those cheeses in my fridge, you know, it, it, I think uh, has, you know, a future written on it that we do continue to, to trade and look at the next five to ten years as, as an opportunity. But in that, I wonder if I could just round off this discussion, which I thank you all for. What are we looking at? Generational shift, the next three to five years? What are things that we should be doing to, to nurture and, and grow and build the dairy industry in the UK and, and how we trade with it uh, across Europe? So so let's have a little futuristic talk before we wind this up. But Tim, are you looking into the future? What, have, what do you think? Um, well, our future is a little bit sort of, you know, it comes from the past, I think. Um, so when we first got involved with um, the Organic Milk Supply Cooperative um, 26 years ago, we sort of set, us, set ourselves a target of trying to, to get 1 in 10 or 10% or a billion litres of organic milk produced in the UK. We're only halfway there. So um, for me, it's really, you know, if, if, if in the next 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, we can we can encourage and be a catalyst, I guess, as a as a brand. Um, if we can be that catalyst that allows one in ten dairy farmers to to take a regenerative organic approach to the way they produce their their milk, then for me that'll be sort of I feel I've done my bit really. Uh, Penny, Marcus, uh, any future crystal balls? Um, I, I mean, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, um, hopefully expanding. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's just trying to push that message of, 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 of quality, making new cheeses, more cheeses, introducing people to those cheeses. And I think one thing Dan taught us is that, that, that there is this, this potential now that people are much more interested and focused mm -hmm. on where their food comes from. Um, and I think we just need to keep, keep pushing that message. Yeah, uh, I agree, and 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 also trying to trying to tell the whole story. Um, everyone's talked about the story. You know, these stories are important because that's how people uh, envis envision their future. Patricia, anything futuristic? Um, well, I've I've spent the last thirty years um, trying to um, <laughs> to provide uh, not only wonderful food but also information and uh, being a, a source of finding fantastic products, whether it's UK or it's, uh, it's abroad. And I will continue to do so. But more importantly, what my work is, is, is to uh, celebrate the people that make it and the place that it comes from, and to understand that the year provides us with all different types of food and that you know you celebrate the seasons as well i want people to be uh, a little bit more respectful of uh, of the time of year and what what we should eat during those times of year and also understanding where in the in the land that we live in in the uk where we get things from and why we get them from and when you know 
and to and to uh, bring those more into focus onto onto the plate, not just for me because my customers know exactly where everything comes from, but for for others and to do away with things like twenty four hour milk milking parlors that, that do exist and to bring back um, at, right from the start proper dairy, proper farming proper realization of, of land and what that provides rather than the bulk buying of stuff which also creates mountains of stuff that doesn't actually get sold and gets wasted we don't want waste anymore so uh, let's get back to a life that we can manage manage it better well, Patricia thank you so much and, and thank you to Tim uh, to Penny Marcus and Patricia, all of you, um, what an enlightening discussion around dairy and cheese and the production of it and the eating of it. I mean, that ultimately comes down to it, isn't it? It's the, the, the final taste on the palate and, and people getting to know, uh, getting to know their product. So uh, before we uh, say goodbye, uh, Tim, Penny, Marcus and Patricia, any, any last points before we sign off? Um, well, I'd just like to say that I think my cheese consumption is going to go up now. I'm not quite sure whether it's, whether I whether I can fit it anymore. But I'm um, I think I'm a bit of a cheese. I think I have to admit that I'm a cheese addict, yeah. and that I'll be off 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 to London to do the selection and um, heading down to South Somerset to try and purchase some from down there as well. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Tim. Uh, Penny Marcus, last words. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a fantastic forum. I mean, so you know, if if we ever manage to convert Hyde Park into a, into a farm for two weeks. Um, may these conversations and discussions continue between all of us. But they can continue on Food FM anyway. It's a, it's a fantastic Absolutely. new initiative. Well done. Well, thank you so much. And um, well, Food FM thanks you all so much. And uh, we're, we're going to um, call an end to the interviews and the sessions. But thank you all so much for taking part. And I'm so glad that Food FM is able to bring you around the virtual table for now. But it will become a, a, a table that we can um, connect to in, in reality soon. So thank you all uh, from Food FM, um, Arthur Potts Dawson, say goodbye. Until next time. Arthur's Table on Food FM with your host, Arthur Potts Dawson.